save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Good morning. Welcome to Sawcast number 14. And today we are honored to have as our guest, Lieutenant Colonel Mitch Utterback. And we're taking a different tack from here from our normal SOG stories because this is an opportunity for us to take a unique look at SOG history and the history from the OSS that led to Special Forces, this, this founding, and then later into SOG. And I'm going to turn it over to you, Mitch, if you could start out with how you and I met now over 20 years ago when you were working with Colonel Bank and his family prior to us losing him, and you had your official function with 10th Group at that time, and you were kind enough to come out to our Special Forces Association Chapter 75 meetings, and we had a lot to learn from there, and you've been giving us information ever since. We appreciate that. Welcome today, sir. Thanks, Tilt. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Indeed. And I'm grateful to be here. Let me... Uh, let me Add some accuracy to what you just said. Pretty please. That's so why we, we paid a big bucks. Yeah. So I was a <laughs> I was a captain in 19th Special Forces out of Los Alamitos Alpha Company right. Fifth Battalion 19th Group. I was prior enlisted in 10th Group, but I never I never want to pass over my 19th Group National Guard Special Forces background. Indeed. So I was a 19th Group guy when you and I met, and I was living in San Diego, drilling in Los Alamitos, and uh, came to meet. Colonel and Catherine Bank through the Special Forces Association. And uh, that's a reason why I would encourage any young guys listening to this that are members of the regiment or recently uh, ETSed to join the SFA. It's not just a bunch of old farts, even though if you look around, <laughs> you might think it is. Well, I guess it is. We have I'm, many. I'm here with Tilt. Uh, but <laughs> the hey, oldest I'm, fart. I'm 60 myself. <laughs> but it's a great way to uh, connect with your history of the Special Forces. And uh, through my membership in the SF Association, I met Tilt, I met Colonel Bank, I met Catherine Bank, and that began a relationship with the Bank family that uh, continued to, to this day with their, uh, with their daughters. Indeed, I remember that one, one time in particular, I think it was either his 99th or his 100th birthday, we gathered outside, he spoke to us, says, troops, I wanna speak to you. And he spoke to us about living and moving forward in life. It was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. And you were there for that. So yeah, it was just it was, a uh, great day. I remember every interaction with him. I remember his voice. <laughs> he had a voice kind of like this. I never agreed with the Pentagon. <laughs> Indeed. And that's the way he talked. And he was a, literally the founding father of Special Forces, a living hero and a legend, and somebody who we all have taken as a mentor whose life and legacy we, we try to carry on in until you do that, and um, I'm endeavoring to do that also. And so. we do that courtesy of Jocko Willink, who I failed to acknowledge in my opening, but we're here courtesy of Jocko Willink Pro Productions, but thank you. Well, that's nice. I, I'm, Indeed. That's, uh, we're grateful, to, grateful for the benefit of um, him allowing us to be on the air. Indeed. So, yeah, in uh, the late 1990s, early 2000s, I volunteered to be the bank family liaison to the active duty. In most 
mostly because of the standing contingency plan for final honors to be rendered to Colonel Bank of, upon his passing. There was a plan written at uh, Fort Bragg that was to be executed by first group out of Fort Lewis because they were the West Coast Active Duty Special Forces group. But I was the closest, closest SF officer to the Bank family, uh, albeit National Guard still. Um, I was the liaison th to the Bank family and to first group for whatever would happen. Indeed. We did uh, in-progress reviews every six months of that plan. I regularly uh, visited the Bank family, as with you, and went to the Christmas parties at their <laughs> assisted living facility. Oh, yeah. Well, Catherine was independent living, and the Colonel was assisted living. And anytime there was a function with the Banks, we were there, including... Uh, the Colonel and Mrs. Bank coming out to Camp Pendleton to watch a company do some CQB training. Right. Now, that was a real big deal. I was at work as a contractor at Naval Special Warfare Command in April of '04 when I got the call from um, one of the daughters that the Colonel had finally passed and immediately put on my uniform and spent the next several days conducting escort for Catherine and casualty assistance officer duties for the Bank family. That was a great honor, and you and I were very closely con connected at that time. And, and at that event is where I met uh, Major General Retired John K. Singlaub. And oh. I remember when he walked in to the little chapel where we had some of the memorial going on, and the, the atmosphere changed. It, it did. was It was uh, the entrance of an American living legend and oh. hero on, I would almost say respectfully, on a level even that above Colonel Bank. Absolutely, I agree. And uh, it was uh, the room was electrified. There were Medal of Honor recipients there, like Roger Donlin. Yes, there were saw guys there, like you and others. <laughs> and everybody stopped when Major General Singh Lao Bennett. I remember Amen. that. Amen. Well. I'll, I'll never forget it. I remember it well, and I just had this <laughs> quick opportunity to introduce myself and explain who I was, and then make sure that Catherine had a, you know something to drink or a comfortable place to sit. Indeed. But that was um, that was when I met him. But as a little boy. Speaking of General Singlau, I read the newspaper, two newspapers growing up in suburban Detroit, the Detroit News and the Detroit Free Press every day. And I remember in the 70, mid 70s, 77, reading in the newspaper about President Carter oh, um, yes. being pissed off at this uh, Major General Singlau, who even as a young, as a teenager, I'm reading thinking, sounds like General Singlaub's on the right side of this. Indeed. He's just saying, don't pull the troops out of Korea or the North's going to invade again. And Again. And uh, <laughs> so I've had the opportunity to visit General Singlaub and tell him that I first came to learn of him while reading the newspaper in 77 in Michigan about the two-star general called to the White House, which I found out later was for a sort of a Jimmy Carter chiclet-toothed ass-chewing. <laughs> Uh, and one thing in the, in the general's book, he said that Carter never stopped smiling while he was ostensibly chewing his ass. And I thought, Ooh, that must have been creepy. Indeed. He also, in the book, also said that uh, I feel like everybody, he had, he had just actually gotten dressed. You know, he just put on a suit coat. Right. And everybody in the White House was in polo shirts. And it wasn't a very formal White House, as the general said back then. Indeed. Anyway, many stories about for a man of his stature, truly, indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah they didn't understand that being peanut farmers and all. Yeah, so, <laughs> so that's how you and I connected, and indeed. that's my my history with the Bank family. I um, I had the privilege of staying close to Catherine long after the Colonel's passing, and uh, in even in Nineteenth Group, we had to take our annual language proficiency examinations to continue to get your language pro pay. So uh, my first set SF language was German, and that's the one that stuck best. My other one was Arabic. But wow. I would, uh, <laughs> as, the, as the, now the battalion commander of the former company that I used to be, the company and ODA commander in, I would travel back to Los Alamitos to visit my troops on their drill and schedule my annual language test then. But I would also schedule lunch with Catherine Bank the day before Indeed. and told her, Catherine, I'm... I'm having my German language test tomorrow. It's that time of year again. Speck Sie Deutsch? Okay then, Mitch. We will only speak German for the rest of the day. Jawohl, Comrade. And uh, <laughs> so we did. So it was lunch, lunch in German <laughs> with Catherine Bank to Indeed. lubricate my brain to be prepared to go into those language tests. And uh, in great part, thanks to her and that, that training, that exercise, um, Indeed. I, did, I did well. Did well every year, thanks to Catherine. 
Indeed. So and so with the Colonel Bank, that's he's our father for special forces. And that lineage of which Jack is such a key player because he performed OSS missions in both World War II theaters. There aren't many OSS men that have that on their record. That's right. That's right. right. Only, um, it's documented only about 100 OSS veterans of the European theater volunteered for duty in the China-Burma-India theater, CBI. And Aaron Bank was one of them. Jack Singlob was one of them, and Bob Kehoe, about whom I spoke yesterday, yes. he was also one of them. And uh, Aaron was over 40 um, at that time, oh, Colonel yeah. Bank. Sure. And um, he's remembered by the Jedbergs that I, that I have spoke with as <laughs> the oldest guy going through training at Milton Hall. And Is that right? Keeping up. He was yeah, certainly yeah. the oldest OSS Jedberg tra- sure. trainee. And uh, impressed Singlaub and impressed Bob Kehoe. I've talked to both of them uh, about uh, their memories of Aaron Bank. And it was, I, it made me think of Martin Sheen's line in Apocalypse Now when he's reading the dossier on Colonel Kurtz when they're in oh, the yeah. patrol boat Riverine right. going up the Nung River. <laughs> and uh, Sheen has a line, something about, um, you know, they must, have been, they must have thought he was a far-out old man humping it through that course. <laughs> because, you know, uh, Colonel Kurtz was supposedly much older, you know, Indeed. going through Airborne and, yeah, yeah. and SF. So, uh, so to, you know, to paraphrase from popular culture, uh, Aaron Bank was considered a far-out old man going through <laughs> Jedburg training at Milton Hall by guys in their early 20s, sure. like Lieutenant Singlaub and... Um, Tech Sergeant Kehoe. And, you know, there's a couple of pictures of, of Colonel Bank where he, you could tell that man was in shape. He was what we would say uh, ripped. You a know, physical for, specimen. For a, for a small of stature, and I yeah. said yesterday that um, in my talk that uh, Colonel Bank was um, what would be considered today a personal trainer in the 1930s for rich people in Europe. He called it a, he was a physical culturist. That's the, an old-timey phrase for uh, yeah. a personal trainer or a guy who makes a living by being fit and teaching other people how to be fit. So quite literally, he's, he remains a role model of mine to be an old guy. Like I said, I'm 60, but I don't want to be looked at as, man, Mitch was a green beret. Sure has let himself go to hell since he got out. <laughs> you know, got to keep doing it. Colonel Bank is looking down on us saying... You guys better stay in shape. Your green berets, you got a reputation to uphold. There you go. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so through Colonel Bank, we move forward into um, the Special Forces history. And, of course, during that time, uh, Jack also had service with spec ops in the Korean War, which we know very little about. But that's also a part of that gradual transition where we go from the OSS that converts to become the CIA there's that period of time where everybody appeared to drop the ball. Then the CIA gets activated again. And we had the Korean War where Jack served with valor there against the communists again. Yeah. So as I studied uh, every book that I could about the OSS, the special operations branch of the OSS, specifically the Jedbergs and the operational groups, and talking to guys like Bob Kehoe and Jack Singlaub at the time, the last two surviving Jeds, now it's just Jack Singlaub. Right. I, um, I, as I read and talked to Bob and the general, I realized that the training that they went through uh, wasn't, never got dusty or rusty. And by the time I went through that Army Special Forces training 40 years later, it was the, much of it was the same. Yeah. Much of it was the same. And as uh, we know in the military, uh, people, we're, we're all lazy, and if there's a class that's already been written, I'm not going to rewrite it. I might retype it <laughs> yeah. and put my signature on it at the bottom of the training <laughs> schedule. But if somebody has already figured out that the wheel is round, I ain't going to na- add 361 degrees to it. It's still 360 Indeed. degrees. So, yeah. so my study of our OSS history has shown me that the training that they went through uh, stateside at um, the Congressional Country Club in D.C., um, area B, the Catoctin Mountain Training Area, which became Camp David in Maryland. Training that they went through in Catalina Island or at Camp X in Ontario, Canada, 
even at, and also at Milton Hall and then some of the long humps they did in the northern part of the UK was just like that's where guys got the idea yeah you know uh, that's where some of our long range land nav came from special operations training which was conducted at Mott Lake um, at Fort Bragg was uh, as I went through it in February of 85 I didn't know that I was going through the exact same kind of training that Bank and Singlaub and Kehoe had gone through when it came to stalking a sentry on guard duty and then sneaking up on him with a knife and taking him out silently. And then land, land navigation. Land nav. Oh, God. my gosh. You know, the land nav that you and I went through, we'll, we'll tilt the land nav that went, was being taught in the 1980s was a direct, direct, direct descendant of SOG land nav. Land nav in Vietnam. Yeah. When it was... Uh, it was too thick to, you know, get a bearing on a distant point. Sure. So it was just uh, looking at your, you know, getting the bearing on your compass. You're in my doing, case. You say, a, you go to the Vietnamese on the team and say, here, get me here. This is our map. See, get yeah, me there. You, yeah, you had your uh, <laughs> your Vietnamese version of a, of a global positioning satellite. There we go. Human, <laughs> a human positioning system. But uh, so, yeah, SF land nav training in the early 80s was directly related and many of the, many of our cadre in the early '80s were guys that it, you had served with, sure. So, or they were, you know, they were like the first sergeants of the training companies, and uh, some younger guys were doing it. But uh, you know, I learned to follow a compass azimuth and do a pace count, and always know where you're where you're at. Um, and that that came from the long humps that they did in you know Scotland and Ireland to prepare them for long range movement. And we know the OSS in World War II did some long-range movements when they got blown out of their, blown out of their guerrilla base, oh, just yeah. like what happens in Robin Sage nowadays. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So, to answer your question, and um, Robin Sage, just for a record, is the uh, final training phase for Special Forces today. That's correct. And it's been there ever since Special Forces was formed back in the early '60s. Yeah, I work in Robin Sage as a guerrilla today, chief. Today, so now. You, you're I'm, well spoken today. Yeah, I'm a guerrilla chief, so I live it still. <laughs> and um, I've heard Cadre say that uh, it's, been, it's been around for at least 53 years. It's been named different things, but that final two weeks of the qualification course is a 14-day unconventional warfare formerly known as guerrilla warfare exercise where we um we pinelanders are, are um some american special forces uh come to our country to help us fight the occupation and uh, so now as i work as a guerrilla chief as in robin sage uh, we are doing the same things that the oss taught the french maquis to do in world war ii uh, patrolling techniques, land navigation, how to use weapons, how to conduct an ambush, how to set up a drop zone for a resupply, how to blow up a rail line, the exact same At key stuff. points with trains on them. Yeah. Indeed. Same stuff. Oh. So uh, that, I would say Robin Sage is probably the most visual reminder that the program of instruction in the, for the modern Army Special Forces soldiers uh, can be directly traced back to training of the OSS, specifically the Jedbergs and the 15-man operational groups. So maybe with that, we could lead into uh, the early 60s when Vietnam is unfolding, American involvement is more is escalating. In the very early 60s, the CIA was running covert operations from their own way. And then in 1964, SOG was formed. And then maybe go into that uh, that transition there when it becomes SOG, and who Chief SOG was for more than two years from 1966 until August 1968. Well, the the, the country chose well when Indeed. Colonel John K. Singlaub was asked to lead because uh, there was I would argue there was no field grade officer with his credentials to lead a unit that, I guess if you looked at SOG and who they drew from and who they were working with and what their mission was, uh, there was no dartboard to throw at and pick a name. There was one guy. It was John K. Singlaub for his, his OSS service in World War II in, the European, in France and in China. 
his before the term sheep dipped was around you know he was he stayed in china for a couple of years paying attention to how the communists and the nationalists were uh which way it was going to go uh it's specifically in manchuria sure his service in the conventional army during uh the korean war uh at outpost harry which is oh. which is famous you know that that was also important that uh, Colonel Singlaub had conventional army background and history and had been to the Command and General Staff College. He had checked all the boxes for his legitimacy and credibility in the eyes of the conventional military, like General Westmoreland. He wasn't, um, he wasn't uh, one of you long-haired hippie Green Berets. Yeah. He was looked upon as a bona fide, highly respected, very um, broadly experienced conventional officer with OSS background and CIA background and had done many of the things already, well, he had, that he was about to ask you and your teammates to go do. Indeed. So much to the point of leading from the front that he rode the Fulton extraction system before he asked you guys to do it. Yeah, he was the first one. He was in his 50s at that point. He wrote it in 67, and as a colonel, again, let me borrow what I had said earlier about <laughs> Colonel Bank and Martin Sheen from, you know, uh, Colonel Singlaub was some far-out old man riding that Fulton extraction system at an age, twice the age of the guys that he was going to ask to Indeed. potentially ride it. And the Fulton extraction was designed for something to extract either key prisoners or key personnel from an LZ, and uh, the person on the ground would be in a uniform with a hook that had a wire extended up with a balloon, and a C-130 would come in, pick it up, and literally you, the man on the ground would go from zero to 130 miles an hour in one half of a second or, or a pubic yeah. hair. And Jack... He said, I'm not going to have my men do it until I test it. Yeah. Of course, the little sidebar today, he told the Air Force, after you pick me up, take me over to South China Sea. Do not go inland. They forgot. They took him inland, and they were shooting at him <laughs> as he was dangling from the C-130. You know, I've seen, I've seen the photos at his house, and he, you know, he's wearing like one of those N3 Bravo winter parkas. Yes. I think that's nomenclature. You know, he's wearing winter clothes on the ground in Vietnam because it's going to be cold up there before they haul him in. And he, uh, there's pictures of him inside the aircraft, covered in sweat, but you can see he's already debriefing the crew chief on the thing. <laughs> and for people that are listening, if, you, uh, if this sounds any bit familiar, uh, if you've uh, watched the, mo- the John Wayne movie, The Green Berets. And James he- Bond, one of the early James oh, Bond no. movies had a skyhook. Okay. Indeed. So the, uh, <laughs> when... When... Uh, when uh, Colonel Kirby, John Wayne, and his team capture that NVA general, and they uh, pull him out. They pull him out by the Fulton system. Indeed. And uh, so that's how where you can see it see it in the movie. Yeah, so uh, we're talking about a man who's still alive at age 100, who has always been at pushing himself and the limits of his ability to do the right thing. Now, and I wouldn't really call General Singlaub a gray area operator either. He, um, he always stayed between the lines, but he, he was racing so far ahead of his commander's intent <laughs> that sometimes they had to say, Hey, uh, Jack, um, I'm going to talk to you for a second. Yeah. But he always got the job done. God bless him. Well, and as Chief Sog from 66 until August of 68, he fought for key things behind, behind the scenes, such as getting CH-43 helicopters, yep. For the King Bees, yeah, South Vietnamese Air Force, for them. Mm-hmm. and then A1 Sky Raider support, yep. which he um, had to go through the Air Force. And there's many a famous background battle over assets that would be there for the recon teams in SOG, on the ground, in Laos or Cambodia, yep. that uh, Jack was a critical player in. So by the time I get there in May of 68, those assets are in place. We don't even realize the battles that had gone on behind the scenes, inter-service battles to get those assets. But he did it. Amen. He, he, he understood, you know, in the Corres Department of France during his Team James Jedberg mission, it was him and his two teammates, you know, with, with his French Maquis, but surrounded by Germans. 
The only air support flying over the Karez department were German planes, and he was getting bombed by HE-111s or strafed by FW-190s. <laughs> so his experience in the, in the late summer of 1944 forever stayed with him. What it feels like when you're on the ground deep behind enemy lines and you have none of your own air support. Even though, arguably, we had air superiority or, over the Luftwaffe then, but he was pretty far into France. So I would say, knowing him and knowing his history, and now speaking to you about when he got you the air support and your partner forces their air support, that, that stems from he had been at a point in his life where he didn't have any. That's and he true. didn't want and you boys I, to not. When you and I have read his book, I know when I read his book, Hazardous Duty by John K. Singlob, yeah. that part where he's on the ground and getting strafed by the Nazis, I'm going, oh my God. Yep. This is what it's like to be on the wrong end of TAC air. Yeah. Because we always thought, hey, you know, we're, we're cool here with our TAC air, but I just can't imagine being strafed. He's been bombed by the twin-engine Heinkel 111s, right. and he's been strafed by the Focke-Wulf 190 fighter plane. So he has been on the receiving end of enemy air power and didn't want you guys to be without friendly, friendly air power. Oh, yeah. And again, again, this is one of the little sidebars with Jack. Before he entered the Army, he's at UCLA. He came up against the communists that were at UCLA. Oh, yeah. And then even with the French yeah. underground and yep. uh, the oh, OSS, yeah. he came up against the Russian version of of the support of the French. And it's just like you could just see him pulling his hair out. And reading that, those chapters in Hazardous Duty was just amazing. Yeah. The, and that's something we had to do, um, you know, during World War II with many of those partisan groups were communist aligned and fortunately France didn't go communist but uh, Yugoslavia did go communist in their own brand yeah indeed yeah there's probably still communists at UCLA so getting back yo, there's no question <laughs> on my mind about that <laughs> professor but, yes <laughs> so getting into the SOG side of things would there be anything else in, the, in that period from 66 to 68, because I know that even when he left, he stayed in touch with the man who followed him, Steve, uh, Colonel Steve Cavanaugh, mm -hmm. because he supported him, he was cared yeah. about that part, and then even though he had a new command, yeah. there's Jack, still caring about his prior command as well as his new command as he moved forward in his career. Yes. Um, Colonel Singlob experience leading SOG, uh, he drew, he was always comfortable in the interagency environment, because he had it in his blood. You know, if, if uh, there was a guy in, uh, you know, a, a guy in civilian clothes, you know, uh, Colonel Singlob spoke the same language. You know, he was never going to be uh, too awed by a CIA officer coming to talk to him. I mean, I've seen it myself. Sometimes uh, regular SOF is a little... Uh, bedazzled, you know, when there's a CIA mission coming down. Or oh yeah, sure. That, but, but not uh, Colonel Singlob. He um, he'd been one of them. He was he had his <laughs> union card, and there was nothing that they could pull. And I'm sure that there were times when he said, uh, "Bad idea. Come come back to me when you got more information before I ask my boys to go do this." Indeed, I'm sure that that was the case. And um, something else was important. Westmoreland liked him. You yes, know, Westmoreland uh, really appreciated him. And uh, Miss Joan has told me, the general's wife, that uh, General Westmoreland, after the war, had said to Joan Singlaub that um, whenever I had a, a difficult mission, I would ask that young whippersnapper husband of yours, Colonel Singlaub, and I knew he could always get the job done with SOG. Right, and just for the record... And I General, don't know if that's Westmoreland's voice or not. I just no, but it. I liked it. Uh, just for the record, General Westmoreland was a supreme commander for our U.S. troops in Vietnam for at least four or five years. Yeah, before so he yielded, General Abrams took General over. Abrams took over in the middle of 68. The yep. tank so, command came in. So when, you, uh, uh, when you're when you a CIA soft conventional guy, like I said, Colonel Singlaub had all the right creds. But uh, to be so well accepted by your conventional four-star, you know, highest-level commander, I, I see that as a, a major accomplishment and a major benefit to SOG also, that um, the big battle space owner, Westmoreland, um, had good relations with the SOG commander, Colonel Singlaub. 
because one of the benefits of a SOG had, we had our, our own supply system set up with Cisco that was in uh, Okinawa, I think, and Jack helped them to upgrade what they were doing there. And that's just another sidebar to all this. Okay, we got the guys on the ground, helped get the assets, and then the supplies. We had any kind of weapon we needed, it came out yeah. of there. Well, as you know, in, in um, Army SF, one of our key, key core beliefs, and we know this, is we, we need external support. We need conventional support to accomplish our mission. You know, it's one of the soft truths, I believe. And, or is it one of the soft imperatives? Somebody will know. It's soft, but it's good moving forward. But it's, um, <laughs> we need conventional support to accomplish what we must. And Colonel Singlob, with his good relations with the big four-star, um, he, he knew that. And, it, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if this, these things that have been codified in our modern soft today, we can go straight back to how Colonel Singlob ran SOG and his relationships with General Westmoreland proved that you got to have good relations and you need help from the conventional forces. Indeed. And that... Um you know, again, maybe we can break down a little bit of that unique training, too, from the languages, working with indigenous personnel. And that's all part of things that go back to OSS lineage there. It's carried forward because today nobody works as well on the ground with people from any country. Because today we have, what, over 90 different countries that SF troops are involved in working in an operational framework that's structured that goes back to OSS, to the SOG days. Yeah, there's a, it's not a coincidence that uh, <laughs> modern special forces go to language school as soon as they are awarded their Green Berets. So the end of the pipeline is you make it through Robin Sage. About a week later, 10 days, you, get, you graduate and you get your beret. And you were just out there, I believe, in April Indeed. for one of those ceremonies. And then you do your language training. And you know before you go to Robin Sage what group you're going to and what your language is going to be. And no, no young man or woman enlists for SF training now without the knowledge that you're going to go to language school at the end of this before you go to your ODA, your, your special forces team. We'll take, let's go back to 1943. Let's. And uh, at Camp Crowder, Missouri for the signal school or Fort Polk, Louisiana or Fort Benning, Georgia. And I mentioned these three army posts because Camp Crowder was where Bob Kehoe heard the call for volunteers for the OSS. Oh, that's right, that's it. Where Aaron Bank was at Fort Polk, Louisiana. And uh, Lieutenant Singlaub was at Fort Benning, Georgia. Georgia. But uh, all three of these men and uh, all, all of our American OSS guys uh, heard some kind of loudspeaker announcement or some kind of <laughs> typed um, notice paper and yeah. type notice in the company message board that said there will be a briefing for uh, men interested in immediate overseas assignment for hazardous duty. You must be willing to volunteer for parachute training if not already airborne qualified. Two years college preferred and uh, competency or fluency or two years of high school uh, or above language training in a European language. <laughs> so it was, before you knew you were getting into the OSS. In the middle of World War II. The two. recruiting yes. said, we want you to have language ability. Indeed. And there is, an, there is another uh, genealogical trace right back from today <laughs> yes. to the... Uh, the recruitment of our guys for the OSS. We wanted you to have some language ability because that proved that your brain was gonna, your brain and your tongue were gonna be able to work in a foreign language and speak it. And there was language training um, conducted. I know at Milton Hall there was uh, French language training conducted for the Jeds going into France. And you've seen this firsthand as a commander in different commands under your time in other countries where that ability to have a language brings you so close in a way to bond with indigenous personnel. You did that. I had an interpreter. But for your yeah. side, you're there speaking the language. Yeah, yeah, Tilt. I've done it. Um, I went to DLI for German. Right. In, um, when I was at E6. 
staff sergeant and uh, was then recruited for our, our special mission unit in West Berlin, then called Physical Security Support Element Berlin. Many people call it Det A. Indeed. And uh, the great book by Jim Stetsko, uh, Special Forces Berlin, is a great story to be uh, to read about. Yes, our first major book on Det A. Yeah. So um, I had just come out of German language school, and I had uh, I had some before that. So being in West Berlin in a in a unit that was there to conduct unconventional warfare in the event that the balloon went up, uh, speaking German enabled me to blend in because we were relaxed grooming standards, civilian clothes. So my German allowed me to not be tagged as an American soldier. Because there are plenty of GIs running around West Berlin, but we distanced ourselves from them and didn't look like them and certainly tried not to talk like them. So not just through foreign language where we are able to better establish rapport and accomplish our missions, in some units that exists today still, having that foreign language ability allows you to maybe not be taken as an American right away so that you can move, swim amongst the fishes you Indeed, know. and even one of the little things they would teach you would be when you eat, you eat like the Europeans do. We're not like America where you cut the food with your knife and your fork, and then you put the fork down and pick it up with your right hand, whereas the, as Europeans, you just keep the fork there. Well, again, that goes that back to the training. OSS. Yes. All the way back to the OSS, and there is a movie, a Hollywood movie, that shows the uh, foreign culture competencies and how they can go poorly for you. You know, the 1947 movie uh, 13 Rue Madeline with James Cagney. I remember it. He, uh, there's a scene where uh, one of the agents is, uh, who has been told not to do it, is using his knife and fork the wrong way, and he is compromised and he's arrested by the Gestapo and he winds up dead, and his team has to go to ground and escape and evade. Uh, a more modern version of this uh, failure of cultural competency is the scene in Inglorious Bastards where Michael Fassbender orders three glasses for whiskey, but he raises his three fingers in the American and British style where your thumb is held down and you put up your, the Ooh. first three fingers. And the Gestapo officer um, busts him for it by saying you, you used the three wrong. You yes. know, in German, three is your th- the one is your thumb. So I, when I saw that at the movie theater, I said out loud, oh, crap, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I had literally been trained in that that myself. But like those you, are the little things that are so critical when you're on the ground. And, and each culture has little idiosyncrasies yep, yep. that SF trains for before they get on the ground. So our uh, our OSS guys operating in Europe had, had that training. Um, I received it myself in, in the 80s and uh, employed it, lived it live uh, in, in West Berlin. And then nowadays, uh, as a guerrilla chief in Robin Sage, I'm ensuring that cultural awareness and cultural competency is is being imparted into the students that come through my lane. Uh-huh. And because we're a foreign country, I'm a Pinelander. I'm not an American. So I can say things to them just to show them that, hey, that's not, that's not how it works here in Pineland. Why are you being so American? Uh, many examples, but there is something as simple as uh, and I, would, I wouldn't say it to the sergeant, you know, in Thailand. I, w- I say it to the captain. Indeed. Captain, um, while, your soldier, while your sergeant was teaching a class, why did he have mouth tobacco in his mouth? And why was he spitting on the ground while he was teaching us a class about the 240 machine gun? Here in Pineland, we find that highly offensive when you're talking to us and you're spitting at our feet. Are you meaning to offend us? So I can say this in character, in Indeed. role. sure. And tell the team leader... Hey, uh, you know, Copenhagen isn't appropriate when you're teaching a class in a foreign country when you're spitting. Yeah. Um, so those are just, that's just one of the little well, things. The most surprising thing that I carried me today for Vietnam was this never pat a child on the head or another person because we were taller than a lot yeah, of the right. Vietnamese. And as Americans, hey, kid, you know, you put your hand yeah. on them or something, particularly children. Uh-huh. And he said, never, ever do it. That's that little that. cultural thing. Yeah, right. It's like just like what you're saying. Yep. Good God. Yep. And thank God I learned it because I, you know, I was just like, hey, come on over here. We're on the same yeah, team. So no, many no, things. no, no. But we, we in the Army Special Forces, we pride ourselves on trying to be the best within our nation's military at understanding a foreign culture 
and the right things to do and the wrong things to do. And as you've mentioned earlier, speaking their language is so important. Speaking it a little bit is important. Uh, especially important is to know, pay attention to the little nuances of what they say to show that, hey, I'm paying attention to you guys and I'm respectful of your culture. Case in point, when um, Iraqis sit down you know, in a comfortable chair after a, you know, a hard day of planning operations, you know, we Americans, we sit down and we might say something like, oh, man, it feels good. Yeah. <laughs> well, when in my experience in during the Battle of Basra, when we were planning, you know, briefing and planning the missions every night, the Iraqi officers would sit down and they sit down and they just kind of say to themselves, oh, ya Allah, ya Allah, oh God. And so I noticed that and I just started doing it myself. <laughs> Just quietly, you know, yeah. I'd sit down. Next, I'm, I'm the one American <laughs> Special Forces officer in a room with 20 Iraqi Special Forces officers, uh, Counterterrorism Service, ISOF guys. And I'd sit down, oh, yallah. And a couple days later, you know, an uh, Iraqi general would come to me, Major Mitch, I, you talk like Iraqi. You are Iraqi. <laughs> you are not American. You are Iraqi. And you speak the Iraqis too a little bit. Oh, that uh, help? Enough, yes. enough. Can you, that, and Arabic was my other language. Yes, and, I know. And um, I focus on the operational aspects of it. But also, like I, like I just mentioned, the little idiomatic expressions that, that they say. And this is a demonstration of respect for them. Sure. And their language and their culture. And indeed their religion. Because I just said Allah. I yeah. said, oh God. So this, um, this binds you closer, brings you, bonds you, and binds you, the three Bs, closer to your counterparts. And uh, <laughs> three Bs. You can, you can accomplish so much more when they look at you and think, this guy gets it, man. We love him. Indeed. You know, he gets it. Before we move on to it, I thought your history is so um, interesting to me. Uh, before we do that, I'd like to close up with any final thoughts on our favorite living OSS General uh, General Singlaw, because we visited him for his 100th birthday. You were there. Yeah. And, of course, the Special Operations Association's Vice President Mike Taylor hand-delivered greetings. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just talking to him, when you get in, away from the people and start talking about operations, he locks in. Yes, he does. To this day, at 100 years old, and you just know he's with you on that. He sure is. And uh, so... You've done more with him along those lines. Any final thoughts about that? Yeah, sure. Please. He's a, he loves company. He loves to uh, look at books that um, have the history in it. And it's sitting with him that we have determined that not all books are right. You know, he's <laughs> researchers. Right. There are OSS history books written now that uh, aren't quite right because... They uh, they just went along maybe with the photo and thought that they knew what it was, but uh, one one important thing there's a there's a photo in his own book, yes, and there's a photo in some other books that have a picture of him and it's often captioned as him interrogating a German prisoner, Team James. Um, but in that photo on the far left is Adrian Wise, who was the commander of Jedburg Team Frederick. Bob Kehoe's commander, and the photo with Wise and Singlaub could have only been taken in October of 1944 when Adrian Wise and Jack Singlaub re-infiltrated France to establish an intel network and re-establish an intel network in Brittany. And the to, key word there is re-infiltrated the second yeah, time. Yeah, most people don't know that uh, Jack Singlaub uh, had two missions in France. The second one in the first week of October, only a week long. But they, uh, he and Adrian Wise ran, landed in a rubber raiding craft in the village of St. Briac to reactivate some intel networks to keep dibs on the 30,000 Germans that were cut off in the Brittany Peninsula. Just to know in case they were going to move against the supply lines coming out of the Normandy beachheads. But he has pointed out to me in, a, in books that there's Adrian Wise. And this was in October. This, isn't, this caption is wrong. <laughs> and I think, man, General, 
Like, I'm the only guy in the world. Now everybody listening and everybody that came to the presentation yesterday, now people know that, hey, let's nitpick that photo in the future when we see it in new books, and hopefully Indeed. we'll get it right. <laughs> but uh, he has shown me that uh, history is still in, can still be incorrect. Even when his life is so well documented, it can still be incorrect. He loves to look at books that have pictures of OSS weapons and operations or photos from Outpost Harry. Yeah. He, um, he loves to revisit photographically his military service. And he certainly appreciates uh, when an SF guy who owns a business wants to send him some swag, whether it's um, protein powder from Alpha Elite Performance or some leather patches from Naylor Forge or artwork by Frank Allen or a coin by John Joyce, you Indeed. name it. He likes getting that stuff. He loves to know that his service is remembered, appreciated, and there are guys still carrying on his legacy, fighting to make our country the best it can be, and our military likewise. Indeed, and uh, George Sternberg, who ran recon with uh, Spike Team Oregon, uh, out of FOB1 and later CCN, had uh, one of the Jason Hardy SOG recon books, his pictures on the front page, and we gave Jack the copy of that, and he just sat there asking George questions. Great. And it was just, like you said, this is one of those moments. And fortunately, the history there was accurate. Yeah, we didn't good. get any Jack corrections. Good, good, good. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I, uh, what I'd like to do is we uh, head down the home stretch of our interview here. And again, thank you for taking time for your schedule. Um, is to talk a little bit more about your history because it's been fascinating. Uh, when you were in Iraq, you served there. Yeah. And again, you used your SF skills, trains during the time on the ground. And then also, after you're out of service, you went you went back for a second time yeah. as a journalist. But first, talk to first sort about a little bit about your time there, because you made connections yeah. that were wonderful, and then you went back and reconnected. Take it from there, sir. Yeah, thanks. Please. In 07, 07 08, our National Guard company was activated in SF. Los Alamitos, right? And we were attached to 1st Battalion, 5th Group at Fort Campbell right. for their Iraq deployment. So our company, 5th uh, Group wound up having one more special forces company than they needed. Of course, <laughs> us, we were the Tuskegee Airmen. So um, National Guard guys, we're going to, we're gonna have the company headquarters advise Hilla SWAT in Hilla, and we're gonna take your other ODAs and we're gonna have them advise different Iraqi uh, special operations type units. And it turned out to be like the coolest mission for an SF company, I believe, during that time. And could I interject a second with a question? I've talked to some recent SF Iraq veterans who said, I believe it's that unit that today is one of the best units in, in Iraq. Is that the same unit? Well, Hilla SWAT, has been absorbed into a division, the Emergency Response Division. Right, okay. Under the Ministry of the Interior. But the Hilla SWAT guys have maintained uh, sort of team integrity, and they're a cohort battalion <laughs> now. So they are a battalion of the Emergency Response Division, but they still love their Hilla SWAT history. Indeed. And when I was with them, um, Many of these old guys from 07 and Hilla recognized me, and I recognized them. So it was a real homecoming. I'll tell you about how I got there in a second. Sure. So in uh, 07, 08, A519 is in Iraq under 15, 1st Battalion, 5th Group. ODAs are in Baghdad advising, combat advising the Iraqi commandos, the emergency response unit. They are running training at Area 4 for the um, Iraq ISOF, the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And where would be Area 4 be in it, Iraq? It's adjacent. It's in, it's in Baghdad, adjacent to Baghdad International Airport. Area okay. 4 was sort of the uh, special operations slice um, terrain close to by Baghdad International Airport. Is that the old green zone? No, green zone is different. That was green, southwest. Green zone is different. Or southeast, yeah. I mean. Yeah, and, I'm sorry. Uh, so um, when was it? March, March of 08, my uh, battalion commander said, Mitch, you guys 
got Hillaswat where we want it to be down there. We're going to let your XO, uh, Jesse, go ahead and uh, run the show from there. I need I need you to come up to Baghdad and start advising the ISOF operations officer, the uh, S3. And give us the, uh, what that acronym stands ISOF for. ISOF is Iraqi Special Operations Forces. Right. They were a brigade's worth of special, you know, yeah. Iraq's version of Army, their Army Special Forces. So I uh, became the advisor. I was a major, and I became the advisor to Major Hyder, Hyder Al-Obaidi. So Hyder and... So I had left General Abbas, who was the commander of Hillaswat. I had been his advisor for several months and left him. That was a sad parting, but we had a nice little party, and oh, we yeah. were brothers. So I moved up to from Hilla to Baghdad and met Major Hyder and became his advisor. Advised him for a few months, and we, uh, in early March, Prime Minister Maliki needed to take his city of Basra back from Iranian influence and Muqtada al-Sadr's Jaysh al-Mahdi. So, so Maliki decided to send his special units, coincidentally, all of them advised by American special forces. Coincidentally. Coincidentally, three of the units that went down uh, were advised by Army National Guard special forces. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, one of those little gem facts that we don't hear about. Right. So the... Uh, ISOF, the commandos, specifically the commandos, the Hillaswat and the emergency response unit um, all went to Basra, all three with ODAs from A519 uh, in the California Army National Guard. Yeah. Got a lot accomplished down there in Basra. That's where I uh, learned to say, Ya Allah, when I sat down and, <laughs> and really... Uh, made sure that uh, my counterpart, Major Hyder, was the hero of the battle. In other words, he did the briefings. You know, I, I helped him with the intel, helped him with target selection. He made the decisions. Um, always the right one. Um, Indeed. <laughs> always the right decisions, coached and mentored um, by his counterpart. And uh, made sure I elevated his stature. Um, I saw General Abbas down there in Basra, leading Hill Swat. In the summer, late in the midsummer of 08, it was time to rotate back to the States. And I told Abbas and I told Hyder, brothers, I will return. I promise you I will, re- will return. Whether in uniform or not, I am coming back. You have my promise. And wasn't that one of the bitter sidebars of Spec Ops when it's that moment in time you got to get on the plane and leave behind your indigenous troops you work with? you it yourself. You know exactly <sighs> how it feels. Brutal. Every uh, every saw guy listening uh, feels that every every American that has had a host, a counter close counterpart that had to say goodbye, you feel that bittersweet parting. But I was blessed in 2016 to be able to keep the promise. I had retired in 15, and I decided I was going to knock out a master's in journalism at uh, CU Boulder, and for my thesis. My master's thesis, I didn't want to do something lame. Indeed. You know, like write a paper and take a few pictures. You're getting some edumacation. I told my prof- <laughs> I told my professors I had an idea, and before I did it, I, I uh, reached out through cutouts because I wasn't in direct contact with Hyder and Abbas after I came back. Right. Because to have a top-secret clearance, one of the questions that the background investigators ask you is, do you have any ongoing and continuous close personal relationships with anybody, <laughs> any foreign nationals, sir? Some word, something like that. Yeah, God forbid. So I wanted to be able to say yes. So, I mean, I love these guys, but I didn't keep in touch with them because I wanted to keep my TS clearance. But when I got out in 15, I started thinking about what I wanted to do for my thesis in, early, in 16. Reached out through some people and established contact eventually directly with General Abbas and now General Hyder. So I was shocked to see that they were still alive yeah. after almost 10 years of running and gunning for their country. Um, they, they had the Iraqi military, even though it was poorly led in 2014 and ran away from ISIS, the Iraqi government was smart enough to keep their special operations units kind of in reserve, not throw them away like cannon fodder. But in 2016, when the biggest city, Mosul, needed to be retaken, 
I was pleasantly, very pleasantly surprised to learn that General Abbas, uh, leading the Emergency Response Division, and General Haider, leading the Iraqi Counterterrorism Service, had been selected as the two ground force commanders for the push into Mosul. And I said to myself, holy crap. <laughs> Abbas and Haider are the yeah. GFCs for yeah. Mosul? My two brothers? And I, came, I realized at that moment that, wait a second, there's no American who has ever advised both of these guys during the same deployment Unless somebody's listening and said, well, I advised Abbas and Haider too during my deployment. I haven't heard that. Yeah. So I, I realized, holy crap, my access and placement, I think, is going to be pretty unique. I re- reached out to them and said, brothers, um, I'd like to come join you in your fight against Daesh for a couple of weeks at the end of December, early January. I'm working on a master's in journalism, and I, know, I would like to document your fight for my master's thesis. They replied back, brother, so good to hear from you. You can... Come to Mosul. You can ride in the battle in my Humvee with me. <laughs> that was my general boss accent. Indeed, yes. So uh, I told my professors, hey, I have permission to go to Mosul, Iraq, embed with the Iraqi forces that are right up against ISIS. <sighs> and I'd like to do my master's thesis on the, the fight to liberate Mosul from ISIS occupation by embedding with the Iraqi units that are doing the fighting. Uh, they had obviously never had a student ask them that before. I said, by the way, I'm going anyway. I've already bought the plane tickets on Google Flights. <laughs> I've already reserved a hotel in Erbil on Booking.com. I'm going. Yeah. Uh, okay, Mitch. Yeah. So they were very supportive. You know, once I, I picked their three right thesis advisors anyway, guys that already liked me. Yes. I had taken classes from. So. I uh, did my own pre-mission training. Yeah. Before I went, I got I went down to Fort Carson, and even as a vet, I could get vaccines if I needed them. So I got whatever shots that I needed. I did some uh, combat casualty, you know, some first aid train up. I took some more Arabic, Iraqi Arabic refreshers. Refresher specific to the trip that I was going to be taking. I collected some gear. I practiced with cameras. I got their. I got new body armor. I contacted other people that had been there to ask for their tactics, techniques, and procedures about getting into the airport, where to stay, how to get to Mosul, what kind of kit you needed, all that stuff. Literally did, uh, you know, interviewed people that had, that I, BBC guys, you know, asked them, how'd you do this? Fox News people, how'd you do it? Learned what countries to not transit through, which I had already done before I bought my ticket. My flight was from from Denver to Frankfurt to Vienna to Erbil. Whoa. Because uh, I, I avoided other countries where they would ask you, hey, why do you have body armor and a helmet and cameras and a <laughs> GPS and a sat phone? And uh, why is there nothing on your computer? And why do you have a new passport? <laughs> and why is there nothing on your phone? Indeed. Mister, you are using tradecraft. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that was just to be a savvy traveler. I'm just being a savvy traveler. Indeed. That's all I was doing. Clean. Yeah. So it worked out. I uh, flew to Erbil and link, got a, my hotel, dropped, a few, dropped all the right names at the airport, spoke all the right Arabic at the airport, spoke all the right Arabic and dropped all the right names at the hotel and worked the phones. And eventually, by um, within a week, got myself a ride straight to the counterterrorism service safe house in Mosul and then rolled for two weeks with the counterterrorism service and the emergency response division. I broke my, my blog is still on hanging up online. If you just Google Mitch Utterback Mosul blog, you'll see my master's thesis from 2017 when I put it there. I'm working on a book about the trip, my mission to Mosul. Uh, I got a publisher already. But uh, the book will be not just like a first-person adventure story, but it's, it's, kind of, it's sort of a tutorial for freelancers that want to get to a denied area and how to do it safely and come back out, the kind of prep that you need. But it's also going to be a, a story of the importance of working within a culture, establishing close bonds, showing respect, and then how with no maintenance on those relationships over eight or nine years 
In many parts of the world, they're waiting to be reactivated just because of the good impression you made so long ago. Welcomed back as brothers. As you guys from SOG, when you return and you can, are able to link up, or here, in, if you go to Greensboro, North Carolina, and you link up with your Mountain Yard teammates, you know, it's like you never left. And, Indeed. Uh, my, my welcome back to Iraq was um, in great part based on the relationships that I had respectfully built eight or nine years earlier, and the book will talk about how important that is. So. Well, you're also being very modest here, because you also have some amazing footage, and you did capture some interviews with those key participants that nobody else had, no other journalists even came close yeah, there, to. There weren't many journalists doing what I was. Well, there, I wasn't even a journalist. I mean, no. I, I mean, the, at the most basic, I was a college student. Freelancer. College, nobody paid me. Yeah. Um, I was a college student working on my master's thesis. Okay, on, on the other hand, I was a retired special forces lieutenant colonel who had been the advisor to these commanders uh, nine years before. That's amazing. So I, I, had, I was like, I wasn't, I was an atypical college student, <laughs> or as they say at the university, I was a, um, what's that fuzzy word they have for old people that go back to school? Non-traditional. <laughs> I was a non-traditional student. <laughs> oh, an old guy that's going back to college. That's what I was. Oh, fascinating. And I've seen that. some of that footage uh, when you spoke to Chapter 78 a few years ago. Yeah, man. It was fascinating. Well, yeah, I'll, as let you, I'll let you guys know when the book finally um, comes oh, out, please. so we'll come out back and talk about it. We'll, we'll definitely come back and talk Great. about some more. Um, with that thought, we're heading down the final road here. Any final thoughts, either on the early side or follow-ups here for yourself? And um, if not, we'll head up and wrap this thing up. Yeah, one thing that's important to me that I would like people to know is um, our old, old veterans, older than you, older than me, you know, there are still World War II veterans alive. There are still Korean War veterans alive. There's a lot of Vietnam veterans alive. And guess what? Older people still like making friends. But older people are losing friends faster than they are making them. People are dying. Absolutely. I want to encourage anybody that sees a vet with a ball cap that might say World War II veteran, Korean War veteran, Vietnam veteran, go up to him or her. And not just say, thank you for your service. That's, you know, like that. That's like the PC phrase that everybody feels like they have to say. But ask questions like, hey, sir, oh, World War II, did you serve in Europe or did you serve in uh, the Pacific Theater? Right. Show a tiny bit of, of knowledge. That's it. If it's Korea, hey, sir, Korea, huh? Man, I... I I'd love to buy you coffee if you got a few minutes, you know. I'd love to hear some something you about what you've experienced if you don't mind. I'm grateful for the country that we live in now because of guys like you. If you see a Vietnam vet, hey sir, uh, I don't want to sound corny, but I just want to say welcome home. I really appreciate <laughs> yeah. you guys, and I'd love to buy you coffee, and I'd love to hear some, you know, hear some of your experiences if you don't mind. We're a different country now. And we, we honor and we respect, respect and we appreciate what you did. So I know. I, we, we used to sit around in Vietnam at night and we talked about which of all the wars that we've been in, which war would be the one you would least want to participate in? It was unanimous, Korea. Yeah, Chosan Reservoir. Yeah. My God. Yeah, you can. <sighs> yeah. So that's what I would like the listeners to take away here at the end is – uh, approach somebody with just a tiny bit of uh, conversation in you, not just a throwaway, thank you for your service, you know? Indeed. Because they might be they might be hard of hearing, and they might say, I don't have a cervix, I'm a man. <laughs> you know, they said thank you for your service, not cervix. <laughs> oh. Indeed. So anyway, sorry, sorry to be a smartass, but. That's right, we be, like uh, it. <laughs> engage them. Spend time with them. If you live, if they live close by, go visit. You know, assisted living facilities and VA hospitals are st are full of people that would like company. Indeed, get off your ass and uh, go be part of the repayment plan that our country still owes these veterans and well, visit them. In that case, let me be the first to uh, welcome you to the Old Man Veterans Club, sir. Thank you very much, and thank you for today. Thanks, Tilt. <laughs>
And as we close here, uh, again, we thank uh, Jocko Willink Productions for making all this possible. And um, we also thank all our service members today, our five service units. Of course, now we have the Space Force, so we have That's six right. military service units. We thank all those service members, Border Patrol, first responders, law enforcement that fight to keep our country safe. We also want to thank the men and women who have served in years past, have come home, and men like yourself that served, Mitch, was such a great honor for our country. We thank you. And last but not least, we also remember and salute the men and women who did not come home. They're for POWMAs. Thank you again. Until next time. Airborne. They oppressively bear. Amen.